Here at the Fantasy Doctors, we use our expertise in the world of sports as well as medicine to bring you the most up-to-date injury news. Our first injury of the day actually broke his back last week. I want Lionel Messi healthy. I want Suarez healthy. Fam, fam. Mo Salah is beasting. I want Ronaldo healthy. I want the whole squad healthy. Seven La Liga title in a span of 10 years. That basically, to me, that means he was concussed. He was knocked out. There was absolutely no competition. We're your hosts, physical therapy students, Andy and Berg. And welcome to the Fantasy Doctors Soccer Podcast. Hello, soccer fans. Welcome to our part two interview with Nicole, the PT, um, out in California, right? Yep, Los Angeles. (laughs) How are you doing today? I know it's been a while, but... I'm doing really well, thanks. How are you? (laughs) Doing good, just like last time. So (laughs) on this episode here, we're going to get a little bit into some questions that our listeners had. Um, We want to say thank you for sending in your questions. We had a ton of them. And yeah, we're going to get into it. We have a licensed physical therapist right here to answer all the questions. So (laughs) our first one is from... Allie, and she wants to know the best educational pathway to get into soccer medicine if she's currently right now an undergrad doing kinesiology. Right. So I will say that every individual is unique and therefore every person's path is going to be unique. I can speak to my path and maybe give you an example of someone else's path in soccer medicine. Um, so basically, I was a Division One soccer player, played soccer my whole life have always loved soccer. It's one of my biggest passions in life. Um, And then I, after undergraduate, I took a year off, worked in a physical therapy clinic that only saw youth and professional athletes. Mm -hmm. And then, so I got really good exposure to that. And it was also a sports performance facility. So I got to see that aspect as well. I also at the same time was coaching youth soccer. So I kind of got all three um, experiences at the same time. I then went on to physical therapy school and while I was there, I was also coaching for um, Top Hat, which is one of the best um, clubs in the country for girls soccer. Nice. And was also working as a personal trainer in a mixed martial arts gym. So I got to see kind of performance and soccer at the same time while learning about physical therapy. And then I've been training um, individuals in soccer while I've been out in LA and have worked in sports performance center out here. And I now work on my own. I see a lot of youth soccer players. Um, that's probably predominantly what I see now. Um, but I also see some general population patients as well. Um, yeah, that's been my journey. Um, As an undergrad, I would say your options right now are limitless. So if you really like soccer, I I really encourage you to at least do the beginning entry-level U.S. soccer coaching licenses because it kind of opens your eyes to what the youth soccer coaches are getting as far as education in America Mm -hmm. right now. Um, I know that there's the grassroots program is getting much better, so I think you can do the F license and maybe even parts of the E license online so you don't have to go to a course you can just sign up online so you can go to u.s soccer website for that really yeah they're they're trying to really expand their grassroots program so Uh. you can do a lot of those things online and i think it's so helpful because one if you go to an actual course in person which i'm pretty sure now i haven't taken the courses in a while but i'm pretty sure for the e-license you would still have to do an on-field component 
Um, so that gets you in touch with your local soccer coaches. So right there, you're making a connection. So if you can go to those courses and say, oh, actually, I'm a physical therapist. I like to work with soccer players. You know, that's, there's a referral source for you. Um, nice. Oh, you I'm going to do build, that. Yeah, it's a really, really great way to get into the soccer community. I also, I'm relatively new to LA, so I go and I play pickup games. There's this great, it's called Venice Beach Football Club. They play street soccer every Sunday. Nice. I go and play with them and, you know, I've handed out my business card and said, oh, I'm a physical therapist. And once they see that I, you know, can actually somewhat decently play soccer, <laughs> they, uh, they start to respect me more and, you know, trust me as somebody who knows how to work with soccer players. So I would say that that's a really great route to go. Um, if you're looking for a way to get involved in the soccer community. I get a lot of those on my pickup group. Everyone asking me, Oh, um, my, my back is hurting. Going on? And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I was like, I don't yeah. I, I say, well, here's my right card. Here. Let's schedule an evaluation. <laughs> I can assess you, right? People want, what, what is going on? It's like, when I do this, my back hurts a lot. I'm like, well, first, don't do that. <laughs> That's <laughs> yes, the first one. That. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, we got another question from We Call Graham. He said, um, what's the hardest part about your job? The hardest part is... The realization, documentation. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I don't, I don't have to deal with that quite as much now because I do, I'm just a uh, cash-based practice. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I work for myself now. So I just take the notes that I need to um, in case I get sued one day, but uh, hopefully that won't happen. <laughs> um, so documentation, definitely. Um, I think that at, when you're a new grad and you come out of school and you take you know, a job and you expect it to be something or you expect mentorship and nine times out of 10, you're not going to get the mentorship that you are expecting. I've personally never seen that situation work out. I've taken jobs where I've been promised weekly mentorship sessions that either just never panned out and never happened or that weren't really that helpful. It was just, well, why don't you do this? And it's the same recommendation every time for every patient, no matter what their diagnosis or problems are. Um, so I would say that it, that's really difficult. And I, I definitely have felt that burnout and fatigue factor early on the first up until working for myself, actually, you know, you're seeing patient after patient. And even though I think the belief and the perception is that, oh, well, every patient is different. So you feel like you're getting something different all the time. It doesn't end up feeling that way when you, when you're yeah, when you're, when you're in tired. the grind. Yeah, yeah, you're like, okay, here's another patient, another patient. And when you work in high volume clinics, which I recommend everyone does at least once, because yeah. there's definitely a lot to learn um, about the healthcare system, um, and just the sheer volume of um, exposure you get the, to patients. Done. Yeah. So. Um, I feel like the burnout is definitely a big issue that young physical therapists feel. But I would say the single hardest part is knowing that you just can't help everyone. And there are going to be times that you fail. Um, and I know no matter who the physical therapist is, uh, no matter how many followers on Instagram they have or how successful they seem, everyone fails sometimes. And it's really hard because in a profession where we want to serve and help people, when there's somebody that you just can't help, um, it's hard. It's really, it's really tough to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's funny. I was telling Andy, like, just the thought of me working in a clinic nine to five for five years scares the hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> no way I'm doing that. And if you want to work with an athletic population, you really have to work those evening and nighttime um, sessions. So I'm most, most of the time. Yeah, exactly. After school, most of my sessions or most of my schedule in my career has been like noon to 8 PM or something like that. Um, So that's, or 11 to seven, you know, so getting those nighttime hours. um, So it can be tough. It, It definitely wears you down sometimes, especially when there's patients that aren't getting better and, patients that um you know might be the more difficult patient that you have to spend a lot of time with but then you have somebody else coming in in 20 minutes it's hard it wears on you yeah so we have a question i don't know um if this was from our one of our followers or maybe it was my question i don't really remember that was was my question (laughs) that was your question okay (laughs) um but the best way to recover from a syndesmosis ankle injury i was wondering if that was one of you um no no that's one of my followers not not oh you oh, thought it was oh, an injury. I thought one no of no um because that's actually in a very interesting question that i don't often get because it's not a very common injury yeah no so I'm most sorry. of the time with yeah most of the time with an ankle it's going to be a lateral ankle sprain um but what i do know about syndesmosis sprains um is that it really depends on whether it's stable or unstable. So first of all, if you have a grade one uh, syndesmosis sprain, which, it, so first of all, I'll just quickly say the syndesmosis would be that um, where the, the distal end of the tibia and fibula, so the, the ends of your shin bone and the other bone in your lower leg, for um, those of you listening who are not healthcare professionals, so your shin bone being the tibia and then the, the bone right next to it in your lower leg being the fibula. So the ends of those bones closer to your foot, that's what distal means, further away from the center of your body. Um, that area, there's a couple different ligaments that help with these stabilities. So when you go into dorsiflexion or toes up towards your shin, the tibia and the fibula, they splay away from each other a little bit. And the syndesmosis ligaments, so that would be the AITFL, PITFL, interosseous ligaments, parts of the deltoid ligament, um, they help keep stability there so they can't splay too far apart. Now, in a syndesmosis um, ankle sprain, that's when you're going to have the mechanism of injury is going to be when you're in dorsiflexion and external rotation or eversion of the foot. So that's going to cause a splaying force between the tibia and the fibula, and then a strain on those ligaments that usually help provide stability. So um, it can sometimes actually look like the same mechanism as an ACL injury, um, but the forces there are just going through the ankle. And usually it's contact, or usually it's from like a foul play in soccer. Um, so usually the contact would be right to that syndesmosis region along with that dorsiflexion and external rotation, um, forces. So if it's a grade one injury, usually these are the players that they feel something in their ankle, they feel it hurt, they feel that contact, maybe there's a foul called, but they're able to kind of limp it off and maybe stay in the game. Um, when we get into grade two and higher, especially if it's an unstable ankle injury, they're not going to be able to keep playing. They're going to be in significant pain and need to come out because they're just not going to feel comfortable and stable on that ankle uh, to continue playing. So at grade one, um, 
basically it's all about the player's confidence in their ankle. They're not at risk of further damaging that ankle. It's like having a bruise somewhere where mm-hmm. it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to hurt if someone pokes it. Um, but you're not really at risk of further damaging anything. There's, you don't need to be worried about tissue damage at this point. So for them, it's more of accepting that, yeah, you're going to feel some discomfort while playing. Um, and maybe initially you'll immobilize and put them in a boot just so that they're comfortable with loading. Um, and that's only going to be for a day or two at the most. And then you'll get them out of the boot, get them loading, um, they can really be full weight bearing after 24 or 48 hours, whatever they're more comfortable with. You want to help them restore their dorsiflexion range of motion because that's what's going to be most painful because it's going to replicate the mechanism of injury with that okay. splaying of the tibia and the fibula. So first thing is to restore dorsiflexion range of motion. And I like to do that with the knee to wall test. Um, then you want to improve their strength of the plantar flexors, the everters and the inverters and the dorsiflexors as well, um, and then progress into jumping, hopping, landing, agility, change of direction, things like that, and then finally reintroduce contact drills. So that whole return to play can really take about a week, seven to ten days maybe, um, but the main things are that they get their dorsiflexion range back. They've done a full contact training session So you've progressed them up to being able to Mm -hmm. do a full contact training session and they have to feel confident in it. If they've done a full training session with contact, but they report after like, Oh, I just didn't really feel right. Um, it felt a little unstable, felt wonky, whatever. Then they're not ready to go into a match because if they're not comfortable and confident on it, they're going to alter how they're moving and that's not good. Um, so the number one thing that I look for when returning them and this is just the grade one stable injury, um, is that, They've done a full contact training session and they felt totally confident and they say to you, yeah, I'm ready to play. Um, And like I said, that can take seven to 10 days or longer or shorter, depending on the individual. That's just a guideline. So now when we get to grade two and higher, we really break it down into, is it a stable injury or is it an unstable injury? So if it's stable, it's going to look similar to that grade one. The only difference is that they're going to be in a boot maybe a little bit longer So maybe a week or so they're in a boot um, just to reduce the amount of dorsiflexion because every time they go into dorsiflexion, they're going to be getting inflamed. They're going to be irritated. And we just want to calm that down initially. So maybe a boot um, restricting dorsiflexion a little bit for about a week. And then we, so also really important here is that anytime you're in a boot or anytime you're immobilized, your muscles will begin to weaken and atrophy. Yes. So it's really important that even when they're in a boot, they're still doing strengthening exercises that they can tolerate. So there's no reason why they can't do a leg extension or a hamstring curl while they're in a walking boot, right? Like you can definitely do those things. You can do things on a table with a band or a motor control of the ankle that are, um, you know, relatively pain-free. I think a little bit of pain is okay as long as it's tolerable for them. Um, so keep strengthening everything you can while in the boot. Um, you want to keep objectively measuring their dorsiflexion range because that's ultimately one of the th- one of the greatest objective measures for returning to sport. So I like to use that needle wall test. So do the needle wall test as long as they're progressing. If at any point through the rehab process they're getting more inflamed or their dorsiflexion range is decreasing with that needle wall test, 
then we have to bump things down a little bit because it just means that they weren't tolerating whatever load we applied that well. So we regress and then slowly build back up again. Um, usually for this, I want them to be relatively pain-free and out of a boot and able to walk pain-free at day 10. Um, so, you know, a couple of days here and there, depending okay. on the individual, but around 10 days, they should be out of the boot, walking pain-free, no issues. Um, hopefully going back to running around three weeks or so. Um, again, using that knee to wall test as a marker for whether they can keep progressing or if we have to regress for any reason. Uh, we want to gradually increase dorsiflexion range of motion, gradually increase their loads. So you can do exercises that do that. Um, and then return to sport in an ideal setting. I would have an isokinetic dynamometer and a force plate, but I don't. <laughs> so, um, functional tests that we would do for any return to sport, single leg hop, triple hop. Um, definitely want to do the star excursion test for this one. Looking at maybe an agility T-test, um, calf strength, things like that. And again, confidence from the player that like I'm ready to go back and same kind of progression as a grade one injury. Now, if it's an unstable injury, and that's been confirmed both on MRI and they go in arthroscopically, arthroscopically, I always say that word wrong, mm -hmm. arthroscopically to look at it and they see it's an unstable joint, it may require surgery, um, especially for the elite players that want to, um, you know, really get back to high level activity. So if they're going to do a stabilization surgery, it's really the same rehab process. The only difference being that they're going to be in a boot and immobilized a little bit longer, which will draw out the entire process. So maybe they um, return to sport at like the nine to 10 week mark. But the whole time, dorsiflexion is going to be an aggravating factor. So we want to limit that initially and then gradually build it back up. And I'm always using that dorsiflexion range using the knee to wall test as an objective marker for can we keep progressing or do we need to regress? Got to build up strength and keep strength as best you can while in the boot, um, which again should really only be seven to 10 days if it's stable. It'll be maybe up to four weeks. Um, if they're having a surgery, that'll be mostly the surgeon's call on how long they want them in a boot for. But you have to still be doing strengthening exercises as much as you can while in the boot. Build up strength, eventually do hopping, landing, change of direction, things like that. They have to do a full contact training session and tell me that they feel confident to play before I allow them to go to a game. Okay. Quick question for you. Have you ever had a player? I don't, I'll just say, I like, have you ever had a player like lie to you and say like, yeah, I'm ready. But like, you kind of know in your mind that like, they're probably not. And how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, there's definitely players. And I actually have probably seen this the most in concussions where they're like, oh, you know, I'm fine. I don't have any symptoms. I, I have to play in this game. Um, usually, if you get to know them well enough through the rehab process, you can kind of know. And there's always the objective measures to fall back on, right? So if somebody tells me they're 100% ready and their objective measures are fine, then sure, go ahead. You're the, I'm going to tell you all the risks and give you an informed decision to make. Um, but it's ultimately, it's always the the players call if they want to play or not. Uh, that may not always hold true in the elite population. There's a lot of other stakeholders making that decision yeah. together. Um, but certainly in the youth population, you know, it's us, the player and the parent, maybe the coach is involved to some degree. Um, 
but there's a lot more stakeholders in the elite population and the professional athlete. So yeah, there's definitely been times that um, people have said, oh, I definitely feel ready, but you talk to them a little bit more and you say, well, what would you do in this situation, especially in a concussion? Um, you know, well, what would happen if you were to go head the ball again? You know, or that, that always takes a quick phone call to the coach or an email to the coach and saying, hey, if you notice that they're avoiding contact or they're avoiding head balls, pull them because it means they're really not that confident. So you, there's always little um, tells, right? Like poker. Mm -hmm. So you can tell they're lying and then you can just probe them a little bit further and tell them the risks of going back before they feel truly ready. Um, and then you can always look at their performance. So if they're not performing like they're ready, then they're not ready. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. I never thought about, you know, when it comes to concussion, like talking to the coach and be like, yeah, if you're seeing these signs, that means they got to go. But I don't know. That's, that's pretty cool to hear. That's why I think it's so important to always have open communication with the athletes, um, the players themselves, the parents and the coaches, you know, if you notice these things, so like in little league baseball, for example, when um, if you notice that they are decreasing their performance on pitches, pull them because it means they're getting fatigued and that's putting them at risk of um, injury. So same thing with soccer. You know, if, if you notice that they're not going into tackles that normally they would, they're not going up for 50, 50 balls that normally they would, they're not making runs that they normally would. Um, they're playing more conservatively. Those are all signs that either they're fatigued or they just aren't feeling that confident and maybe they should take, come out of the game. Mm. So another question from one of our listeners, his name is OK Hanjan. Um, he's a Barcelona fan, as I am. Yeah. And <laughs> Me too. Yeah, there we go. Wow. Solid, solid choice right there. <laughs> Arsenal and Barcelona. Wow. Like yes. <laughs> I'm ready to leave this meeting now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you saw the game yesterday, but Barcelona played an away game against a team that was recently promoted. Mm-hmm. And their stadium, and especially their pitch, was in horrible state i don't usmane usmane should have scored all those opportunities that he had but he, he didn't he only scored one you should have won that game like five nothing <laughs> but the the pitch the pitch was absolutely horrible um i think it was laid down like two or three days ago and you can see like giant slabs of grass just everywhere and one of our listeners wants to know um how can the condition of the pitch affect your injury risk that's a good question Yeah, so that's definitely something that's been looked at, especially in the ACL research. Um, I will say that, so underlying principle is the, your cleat and field interface, that friction interface definitely affects or can affect injury rate. So that's what's really important. So um, they've done some studies for ACL risk and they've shown that there's a higher correlation of ACL injuries on turf versus natural fields. Um, and then when it comes to natural grass surfaces, like Bermuda grass has a higher risk of ACL injuries than another kind of grass. I don't know other Mm. types of grasses. Um, but so, um, that's actually why the U S women's national team, um, had a, a a big problem with, they were being told to play games on turf and actually the women's world cup, they were playing games on turf and it's, how can you, you would never put the men's national team on a turf field. So why are you doing it to the women's team? But I digress. <laughs> um, I yeah. can go for days on that topic. Um, but yeah, so the condition of the pitch definitely can. So if it's rained for two days straight and it's just a soaking, like sodden wet 
field, that's definitely going to change the frictional interface between the cleat and the field. And then that changes how you move, which changes your risk factors for injury. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Also, I mean, like if, if the grass is really thick and maybe wet or muddy, it takes a lot more effort to get going, right? So you're going to be using your hamstrings a lot more to be pushing you through. You're like running through muds, you're using your plantar flexors, hamstrings a lot more. Maybe you're going to fatigue out faster and then potentially get a hamstring strain. Um, so there's definitely factors that can influence injury. Yeah, that, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's so many factors. And even when you're dealing with like, youth sports in general you 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 can say someone's ready right and then it turns out the first game is like the club championship and it's raining and their cleats are in like horrible state and they're slipping everywhere there's there's just so many variables when it, when it comes to this stuff really there really are i actually play in a pickup league here on a turf field that it's the field turf the um you know the kind of turf like field turf is a company but the kind of turf that has the black rubber in it usually oh yeah mm -hmm. so it's that turf minus the black rubber particles oh wow so people slip and slide everywhere i wear cleats on it and i still slide everywhere you know no matter what kind of shoe you wear turfs indoors cleats you're slipping and sliding and with, within only like the first three games, somebody on my team tore his ACL. Ooh, um, yeah, so it, no. And when you're on it, you feel it, right? You feel it like you're playing on a skating rink and it's like, this can't be good. <laughs> um, so definitely it has a lot to, to do with it. And then also um, for non-professional athletes, like our youth athletes, if they're playing on fields that aren't always kept in the best condition, like there's bumps all over, there's a, a, patch of dirt in one spot but then it's thick grass in another um that'll change their reaction so if they go up for a header and then land but they're halfway on grass halfway on a rock or halfway on a sloped area um that changes their landing mechanics which can yeah for injury that's why i stopped i stopped playing in grass field on on the boston area because it's not well well kept yeah I, I i for the past like three years ago i i ran to a period of time where every time i play i almost near the verge of spraining my ankle like i'll mm -hmm. go through like three ankle injury in like two months yeah also I, mean, I was in well conditioned either so <laughs> that, that <could> <laughs> it's, not, it's not just the field so that's why it's so great that arsenal keeps such great care of their field i don't know if you've ever done the emirates tour but the amount of detail that goes into their pitch is unreal really tell us more about that what do they do uh, I don't know if I know if I remember all the specifics, but like they make sure like each blade of grass is like the exact measurement that they want it to be. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Like that Man, grass. Gra the people that do the grass, they might get paid a lot of money to keep. <laughs> oh, I really hope so because that's a lot of work. A lot of work. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Let me see. What um, I have a question here from um, I think okay, so. Arlen, he's uh, 13 years old, and he wants to know, like, how do you know if you're training too hard? So I guess I'm spinning the question more into a, a matter of, all right, what is, like, how do you know if you're overtraining? Yes, so... You know, when you're young, you can go all day long on a field. Exactly. That's like, I, as I said before, you know, I would have girls that I coached come straight from their cross country meet and say, okay, we're ready for practice. Oh, you're not practicing right now. Um, 
So, I, and especially kids signed up for every after school activity, every sport, and they go from one thing to another. Um, and we think it's fine because kids have energy for days, um, mm -hmm. but maybe it's not the best thing. Who knows? Um, but so you know that you're, there's a couple ways to know that you're overtraining. And I will say that to be overtraining is, it's hard to be overtraining. Like, I think it's very rare that people are actually overtraining. And the biggest problem is actually just sudden spikes or drops in your training load. So mm -hmm. if you're over, if you're training a lot, but you're training a lot chronically, there will be times that your body needs a rest period, like an off season or something like, or a vacation. Um, but there's actually a protective, um, a protective position of being, of training hard chronically. And Tim Gabbett has done a lot of research in this field with the acute to chronic workload ratio. And basically if you're training a lot, but you're training a lot consistently, then you're probably really fit and therefore have a decreased risk of injury. The issue comes in when you take two weeks off and then go right back to the amount of activity you're doing prior to that, or you go on summer holiday, you're not training for a month and you are like, oh, well, I was playing six days a week before my vacation. I can do that now too. And that's where we see a lot of the issues. Um, so know you're overtraining. If, I, I would say just track your training load. If you know how much you're training each week and you can compare that to the weeks prior, That'll give you a good idea of what you can continue to do. Um, and then if you notice a decline in your performance or you just feel lethargic, you feel extra tired, um, you feel slower, uh, not as powerful, those are probably all signs that maybe your workload is a little bit too high for what your body is prepared for. And you just bring it down a little bit and then slowly build it back up again until you're at where you need to be. But I would say probably in the in the youth population where we don't have things like GPS tracking and um, all the sports science data to collect, that you can look at your performance and see if it's declining. Then you know that maybe you need to scale back a little bit in the short term and then build it back up. Good. Yeah. yeah I like that. Let's keep a schedule. Keep a mm -hmm. keep a keep a log. Yes, I always I always suggest keeping a training journal, a training diary, and say, okay, today's session. Um, I felt this tired or you can use the RPE scale. So, um, that's how the rate of perceived exertion. So how hard you felt that was. So today's practice was an hour long and I thought it was an eight out of 10. Um, that same type of practice three weeks later, you thought it was a 10 out of 10, then maybe you're fatigued and need to take a little bit of a rest and then build it back up again. So as we're starting to wind down here a little bit, so I know in, in soccer especially, there, there is no off-season, right? So what's your advice to players and coaches and parents or whoever people out there that are, you know, they want their child or they want to get the most experience that they can, but they, they also need to take time off. And when it comes to like overtraining chronically, how, how do you deal with that? So I would say that there definitely needs to be some kind of paradigm shift when it comes to youth sports. I mean, in the Premier League after a World Cup, Sir Alex Ferguson used to give his Manchester United players a four-week time off. So it, if the, they get the four weeks, actually. <laughs> no, they, this year they didn't, which is why we're seeing so many early injuries, I think. Um, that's a whole other issue with how many players were actually playing up until the last weekend of the World Cup this year. Um, and that then we're playing in the Premier League in the first week. But 
and that's uh, another issue. Um, but yeah, so if, if even the best players in the world are taking a three, four week vacation or a time off or downtime, then how can we not give at least that to our youth athletes? So there definitely needs to be a paradigm shift and they don't need to do every camp and clinic in the summertime. They don't need to do every extra training session. It really is. And it's because youth soccer here, unfortunately has become big business and with the pay to play with parents paying thousands of dollars each season for their kids to play soccer on a good club team, they expect that they're going to be getting year round great coaching and to be really great leaders in youth soccer, we need to be able to say to the parents, um, that's actually not what's best for your child's development. They need some time off. You need an off season where you wind things down and then a preseason where you slowly build things back up again before the actual season. If that's what the pros do, how come we're not applying that to our youth? We expect more out of our youth players than we do out of our professional players. And it's mind blowing to me. Yeah, that is true. And I think another important thing about that is definitely branch out into other sports as well, right? Because even if you're building skills like passing and, and like vision off the ball movement, I mean, you see that in every other sport too. And if you can kind of use it in one, you can apply it to another. Yes, absolutely. And playing other sports helps you develop better all around athleticism. If you look at some of the best players, like Alex Morgan, for example, on the U.S. Women's National Team, she didn't commit to only soccer until she was 14 years old. Um, she played basketball and other sports. Christy Rampone, who was on the women's team for years and used to be the captain until she recently retired, she played two sports in college at the Division One level. She played both basketball wow. and soccer, Division One. That is cool. Yeah. So it really does help you become a better all-around athlete. And maybe there's a protective factor there against injuries. So maybe it helps you develop better athleticism, yeah. better motor skills. Um, and then you're not using the same motor pathways over and over and over again and wearing those down. That's, that's cool. Cross-training. Cross-training is important, guys. Yes. Play different sports. You don't need to only play soccer your entire life. You can do other things and then commit to one thing later on in life in high school. Yeah, definitely. Um, maybe one last more clinical question before we start to wrap it up. Uh, we probably all get a little bit of stuff about this. Um, Abdul says he has Oscar Schlatter's and it hurts his knee when he's playing. How can we reduce that? So do you want to give us a little bit of background on Oscar Schlatter's and how to kind of help if people are having pain with that? Yes. Yeah, so Oscar Schlatter's is um, an apophysitis injury. So that's where your patella tendon in the front of your knee attaches to the tibial tuberosity. And what happens is, especially during growth spurts, so this, uh, just to point out, this only occurs in people with open growth plates, so those still growing. Um, usually we'll 13, see it. 14 range? Yeah, usually we'll see this in like pre-adolescent females okay. is probably the most common population we'll see it in. Um, but you can spot it right away when you see a little bump on the tibial tuberosity. So uh, what's happening is that the patella tendon is getting put on stretch with a lot of tensile load and it's pulling away from that tibial tuberosity. So that bump happens because as it pulls away, there's osteoblastic activity to lay down more bone tissue. So it pulls away a little bit, lay down more bone tissue, pulls away a little bit more, a little bit more bone tissue gets laid down. And that's what happens when you see that bump on the tibial tuberosity. Um, so 
this is going to be something that I know it hurts, but you're going to literally grow out of it. Um, so with, the, <laughs> with this, um, I always recommend just looking at your training load. If you're playing a game that's, let's pre-adolescent, let's say a 60 minute long game, and at around the 50 minute mark, you start to really get that pain, then maybe in your next game only play 45 minutes and see how that feels, or just play you know, 20 minutes in the first half, 20 minutes in the second. Um, and then you can see, like kind of play with how your knee is feeling on a given day and adjust your training load. Um, you can do um, like stretches and strengthening for it. But again, it's the result of a growth spurt. And really the key driver in the symptoms is going to be your load. So you can increase or decrease your load based on your symptoms um, and just wait it out. <laughs> Yeah, sorry guys. Asgur Schlatter is one of those where, you know, you have to basically progressively, you know, train until you know you, until you meet you get to a point where your 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 knee can actually tolerate. Exactly, load. it's all about load tolerance with this. So to see what they can tolerate, meet them there when they're ready to progress. Allow them to, if they need to regress, allow that as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so why don't we kind of close up here? Um, let's take the next few minutes to talk about if people have questions, if they want to contact you, your Instagram handle, things like that. So where where can our listeners find you? Yes, yeah, so you can find me on Instagram is where I'm most active, and I'm at Dr. Nicole PT. So that's Dr. Period Nicole PT. Um, so you can feel free to DM me on that. I'm pretty good about responding to every direct message that I get um, through there. So definitely hit me up on that if you have any questions. Cool, cool. And Perfect. you're out of LA, right? I am. I'm in West LA um, in Marina Del Rey. It's right next to Santa Monica and Venice Beach. Nice. <laughs> nice. Venice Beach in my life right now. I always, always, <laughs> always tell my girlfriend, like, if I'm, if I'm moving, if I'm living in Boston, I'm going west. God. Yep. <laughs> I'm going south. Can't beat it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for all listening in today. Um, you can follow me at the football physios and Berg, what's your handle? You can find me at the soccer obsessed. All right, cool. So be sure to give us a five-star review. Check out both of us and Nicole on Instagram. We, we work really hard trying to put out good stuff for you, but especially follow Nicole. Her content is amazing and she's working very, very hard. That is true. Thanks all for right. having me guys. All right. Thank you so much guys. See you next week.